<sighs> I had actually one one question for Patrick before we started, um, which is, were you surprised to see uh, the the um, Republican and conservative parties and honestly, all the other parties uh, in the West take such a strong stance on Demnatio Memoriae? Uh, and its relationship with uh, <laughs> so-called Antifa terrorists. <laughs> um, was I surprised to see them take such a strong stand against it? No, I was not because it's the, the funniest part about the whole thing to me is just like the way in which they're like, no, yeah, we're absolutely neo-Confederates. That's 100% what we're doing now. Like we are absolutely mm. identifying ourselves with these uh, characters from a horrendous past. Like that's us. You, you've, you've got us figured out. You've got us hemmed in. Um, like, of all the ones that really got me, like the biggest one was Christopher Columbus. I'm like, that dude just sucked. He was just shitty. Like he was, he wasn't the only thing he was good at was like practical navigation. And that's just because he was, he had survived the fevers and infections long enough to go everywhere. Like, but he was Italian. (laughs) (laughs) Silvio Dante just out out here, still defending statues. The world is just a Sopranos plot line. (laughs) My, My position, my position on this though, is that, if you want is that they should be logically consistent is that they should say look we are not only going to defend all the neo-confederate statues we're not only going to defend all the statues of imperialists and slave traders we want Sejanus back up or <laughs> <laughs> the image of Sejanus. Well, like literally the, there's guys in south philly who want them to put up the frank rizzo statue again <laughs> I, like that. I, I like i like the guy who got arrested today um the one who was like pissing next to, not on mm. the memorial, but next to the memorial, who describes himself or was described as someone who just genuinely likes to defend statues. And just, yeah, like, in the abstract. <laughs> just like yeah, he, drank, he drank 16 pints and then went to defend <laughs> statues in general, like the concept of statuary. Yeah. After 16 pints, you don't know what's a statue and what's not. (laughs) Just urinating on a human statue. Going into Trafalgar Square, just swaying back and forth, ready to, like, do haymakers (laughs) on people who don't tip the human statues. (laughs) My father was an human statue, and he didn't stand perfectly still for 45 odd years of his working life for people like you to come and tear him down. Hello and welcome back to this bonus episode of Trash Future. We are here today, myself, uh, Riley in studio, Milo, Alice and Hussein in undisclosed locations. All defending um, separate statues. <laughs> Milo, Alice and Hussein, all of whom are in are, are defending statues disguised as other statues. <laughs> We've all got our arms folded and we are standing vigil outside there's, the nearest there's, statue. There's a, there's, a, there's a very ugly statue of like a multicolored rain, well, like a rainbow fish near where I live. It's disgusting. And it's yeah. been there since like the no, bloody early political correctness. I'm currently recording from the roundabout to defend it from Antifa that want to take it down <laughs> and replace yeah. it with... We can't have a statue of Churchill, we have to have this gay fish instead. (laughs) (laughs) Typical. Um, And and we are also joined by returning champion and friend of the show, uh, Patrick Wyman, who is also the host of the Tides of History podcast and who publishes a historical substack that, hint, I have referenced heavily in the notes for this episode. Patrick, welcome back. 
Hey, thank you so much for having me on. It is an absolute pleasure. Um, so, uh, basically, a, a little bit of a peek behind the curtain uh, for mm. you, the listeners. Uh, after we had Patrick on last, we were talking about what we wanted to do next, and we were saying, oh, you know it'd be fun? Let's watch a movie. Let's watch like the Guy Ritchie King Arthur movie. Let's just like relax and have some, uh, have some fun. The However, fun in season three, events and history has a way of happening very fast. And so... Yeah, it's, it's like the famous Mao quote, everything under heaven is in chaos, the movie episode is cancelled. Um, and so, rather than rather than do that, which we will do at some point in the future when all the history slows down, when William F. Buckley gets his wish and history stops, um, and we Francis are going- Fukuyama finally comes back from his fucking tea break. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we, are, we, we will do something like that again. Um, but- uh, we felt like what we what we originally had sort of at the beginning of season three was a, a macro view where when it became evident that let's say uh, most of uh, most of the sort of neoliberal and capitalist economy was heading for a crisis that it did not have the institutional capacity to handle, we were thinking, okay, let's talk about social level collapses. And now that we've gone on a little bit into this slow rolling social social collapse, I was thinking it would be interesting to talk about institutional collapse, go down one level of analysis and talk about what we mean by institutional rot and the widespread collapses of political legitimacy and how these are related to violent repression. Hmm. The why you can't trust the process episode. <laughs> Effectively, yes. Um, so Patrick, political legitimacy is something that you've and institutions, indeed, are both topics that you've actually written about quite a bit about on the uh, substack you are mentioning. So I was thinking it might be worthwhile just running through a few of these concepts about what a crisis of legitimacy is, what a political institution is, and how these things are related. Okay, so let's start with institutions in general. So there are a couple of different ways of, of looking at institutions and thinking about them. Um, there's the sense in which we usually mean the word, which is like a bank as an institution, like an identifiable place that you go that has kind of rules according to which it operates. Um, but in a broader sense, there is the, the concept that I like, which is institution as rules of the game. The kinds of things that we, the kinds of rules that we all agree to abide by, um, where like you go to a market, you make a purchase, like there are rules that apply to how you go about doing that. And that, to my way of thinking, is kind of the broadest understanding of how we should grasp what an institution is. It's an, an institution as rules of a system, as rules of a game. Um, there's a second and related definition to that, which is institution as equilibrium, where um, again, it, it plays into the idea of rules, but like you all have kind of agreed that this is how you're going to do things and it shapes, uh, it shapes your behavior. It molds the behavior of actors within a particular system. Um, the problem with understanding institutions as rules, as systems, as games, as, as equilibria is that it's hard to come up with models for how institutions change. Uh, because if you accept that an institution is an equilibrium or that it's just kind of this set of rules that you all agree to play by, like, how does that change if you're if you are kind of inculcated with this sense of how the thing is supposed to work? How can it possibly change? Um, there are a bunch of different theories for that, which are more or less kind of applicable or interesting or viable. I like the one that's cr the that's centered on critical junctures that just you have a bunch of shit that happens. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, no, we got to change. Things are going to change. Um, and so either the institutions uh, shift in response to this crisis, or they just kind of fall apart and you're like, ah, shit, well, there went the institutions. 
Yeah. And I, I wonder which one we're in the middle of. I tend to think of these things similarly. Uh, I, I really like the, the cybernetics definition, which is like um, it's a study of systems, basically, of understanding institutions as systems that have in their roster something that uh, the main theorist of systems, Stafford Beer, called a variety, which is just the things that they can do to respond to pressures and shocks. Mm-hmm. And um, an institu- a brittle institution has very little variety. There's very, it's very constrained in what it can do, or it can do a lot, but just different versions of the same thing, like, say, violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it is, and quite simply, when it, is, uh, it, when it experiences a shock and can't bring to bear an appropriate response to integrate that shock, it then collapses because it can no longer keep itself stable yeah um, i mean that's yeah. that's what we're talking about when uh, like if, if you've asked the question why are the cops like brutalizing sympathetic journalists live on the air uh, that that would be a question of variety, right? Because you don't have a response to person in front of me as a cop that isn't brutalized them yeah, it's, I'm just it's now a bit literally. worried about the 20% stake in cybernetics that I was sold by Christopher Moltisanti. <laughs> <laughs> uh, quite, quite literally, there aren't enough arrows in the quiver because they only have arrows in the quiver. They have sort of nothing else. Hmm. Um, when and all also- you have is a beanbag shotgun, everything looks like your implicit bias trainer's genitals. <laughs> <laughs> no. Hey, you uh, promised it's... you wouldn't talk about how therapy said. <laughs> no. Um, Patrick, this is from a, pol- a piece you've written, uh, slightly paraphrasing it. Uh, the political systems and institutions that are supposed to be responding to all the stressors, and here's where I added a paraphrase, that have been boiling over in season three, aren't exactly doing a bang-up job of handling things. When, when you throw a, this is specifically relating to police killings in the US, but I think we can sort of make it broader. Uh, when you throw a completely brutal, unjustifiable police killing into the mix, the results aren't surprising. At the heart of these cri- of those crises are basic questions about what the system has to offer for whom and whether it's capable of delivering on its promises. These are questions of legitimacy, of whether we have to do what we're asked and why, and if there are no good answers to be found, there's no guarantee that the system will survive unscathed. And in fact, there's no guarantee the system will survive at all. Any stabilizing response to our ongoing crises has to depend on addressing why exactly so many people have lost faith in finding ways to restore it. I think that brings us into the idea of we have our institutions, we have them unable to respond, except in many cases with violence, and now we have a crisis of legitimacy because they can't fulfill any of their, any of the, as you said earlier, the implicit rules and promises that they make. Yeah, there's basically legitimacy is a really useful lens for thinking about all of this because it's everywhere. It's um, sometimes we think about it explicitly and the times when we're thinking about legitimacy explicitly are frankly the times when legitimacy of a system or an institution is in trouble. Um, It's just everywhere. It suffuses every single aspect of how we interact with these institutions and systems because they work because we don't have to think about them because we trust that things are going the way they're supposed to go. If you have to stop and think about like, do I really have to stop at this traffic light? Then the traffic light, then there's a problem with the traffic light. There's a problem with the system that puts the traffic light in place. And that's kind of why legitimacy is useful for this at this uh, for for us at this point is because everything seems like it's falling apart. So we're having to stop and ask these questions about like, man, is it really right for police to shoot an unarmed guy in the back? That seems like it's not okay. Um, And the reason why the police thing to me seems like such a trigger for all the rest of this is like police are the armed agents of the state. And so 
if they're shooting unarmed people in the back or kneeling on a guy's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds as he begs for his life, like that causes you to ask some deeper questions rather than just the ones about like, huh, why is uh, why is this guy who's uh, who has been shooting himself up with Trenbolone for the last 20 years kneeling on this dude's neck? Hmm. I think it goes it goes to this thing as well that it's something I keep sort of expressing, but I think I haven't quite found the way to to do it yet until now, which is why everybody who sort of made their political and uh, media career in the 1990s and early 2000s is just completely failing to grasp what's going on right now, quite simply because they're they haven't caught up with the idea that these systems aren't working for people, mostly because they don't experience them. And then they see other people questioning that legitimacy as attacking a broader political system that they feel is functional. Yeah. And it, it, it seems to have led an almost coddledness that has led to an inability to grasp the nature of the current crisis. Like, it's, it's so funny also that when even when they do have personal experience of them, like uh, the, 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 the Sergeant's Benevolent Association of the NYPD <laughs> doxed <laughs> Bill de Blasio's daughter. And then he got up on TV and he said, yeah, no, actually, I think the police are, are showing a great deal of restraint. And I don't know how else you explain that other than some, some powerful ideological shit is going on here. Yeah, I mean, One if that exists in Britain, the Sergeant's Benevolent Association would absolutely be some kind of paedophile ring front. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to just a front for like a bunch of dudes with way above average rates of domestic violence. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. The two genders. Um, so now what we... What we God. So what, what you've written here, uh, Patrick, is if systems don't live up to their values, if they can't deliver on their promises of prosperity, peace, and justice, then participants lose faith in them. As norms break down and the understanding of the possible shifts, so too do the actions of those participants. And in different ways and to differing degrees, wide swaths of the American public, and I think that goes for the British public, many publics in Western Europe as well, have lost faith in what the political system has to offer. Tax revolts, armed protests, and the refusal to follow simple public health instructions, protests against violent, police violence as well, all share this lack of faith in common. So I think what's interesting here is that you see the legitimacy crisis, it goes, it's connected to this idea of, of a shaking social order, where in the sort of le in the years sort of post 1990 and the militia movement and the election of Obama and stuff, the right has sort of seen itself lose and a right in terms of like, you know, white petty bourgeois business owners and stuff, the jet ski dealership conservatives have seen themselves lose their their place threatened on top of the um, on top of the hierarchy. And so they have largely acted as though the rest of the political system isn't legitimate. And it's taken longer, I think, for most other people to wake up in the same way. Uh, you know, it's it's regrettable that it's taken longer for most other people to wake up in the same way. But these protests against the pol as police violence are saying, well, these systems are are har are actually threatening our lives. So it's it's interesting. You talk about two two legitimacy crises, crises. One that's based on you know like a reactionary fantasia, and the other that's actually based on uh, material things. Yeah, it's the heavily armed RV dealership um, consultant type that's like that's like no, you can't ever tell me what to do. And so that's a that's one kind of crisis of legitimacy. If that if that class of person, like the jet ski dealership owner, is a, is a great way to way to sum them up. Like that person recognizes no limits on their behavior at all. <clears throat> the state exists and the legal system exists solely to benefit them. Like there is no extent to which they are bound by law, except but 
there exists this whole other class of people who are bound by law, except they're just not subject to any of the legal niceties of protection. And they're and they're looking at a much different kind of legitimacy crisis. So instead of it being that the state tells me what to do and I don't want to do that, it's the state is not doing what it says it's supposed to do. Because like theoretically, the American system is based on general rules, like the, the idea of equality before the law is a general rule. And when you see over and over again that this is just not how the system works, you start to ask questions about like, well, if that's bullshit, then should does that apply? Like, what what are we actually doing out here? And so, you know, I think there's an extent to which the election of Obama for the left and the center left was like it took some wind out of the sails because you're like, oh, this is just the dude who's going to solve things. I know for a lot of my peers, I was like, I was like 22, 23 when Obama when the whole Obama thing was happening, like. People got really into that. I had friends who like moved to their home states to go organize for Obama uh, and people whose political leanings probably would have run in a more radical direction had it not been for that. And so, you know, you get the guy elected and then the stuff just doesn't happen. So like, I, I think now a decade plus later, now those questions are kind of coming back home to roost. Like there was a chance, I, I think, with Obama for uh, the kind of center of American politics to come to terms with some some fairly drastic structural shifts, and it just never happened. Hmm. Well, like I'm, I'm also very interested in the right here because it, it, it strikes me that a lot of the like I'm, I'm fascinated by the boogaloo guys, the guys who want to like shoot at cops for infringing their liberty and for killing people. Uh, like often that they have a wholly congruent libertarian worldview. But what strikes me about them is that they have been caught on like the wrong side of this pendulum, where when the right is out of power, the sort of the doctrinaire, the establishment right, is content to do this kind of insurgent thing. And you have the NRA talking about you know ATF jackboots coming into your your front door and stuff. And then as soon as they gain power, they're back to, we love cops, we love our law enforcement. And so just finding yourself being consistent about that uh, and and losing that faith in a way that is more uh, dramatic than just, I need to get a haircut regardless of if I kill everyone around me. That's very, very funny to me. So I'm I'm really interested in this, and I don't actually have a good answer for it. I'm curious as to what you guys think. How much overlap do you think there actually is between those two groups? So you have the people who are actual authoritarians, right? Like they're just, they're going to support, um, their baseline tendencies are going to lead them towards supporting symbols of law and order so long as they belong to the favorite in-group. Like, mm. and now sure, like maybe when they're, they're out of power, they're going to support some more libertarian-ish language, but they're probably not going to actually take up arms. But then you have the people who... They may they may see those authority symbols as more congenial to them at times when they're in power, but they're still like, oh, no, we don't like any of it. We're we're still going to stockpile the guns. We're still going to do the. Sh we're still going to plan for the shooting anyway. Like three percenters, even during um, even during Trump's uh, time in office, have still been like active. They've still been out there, and sure, they make some alliances with law enforcement, but they're uh, kind of on a case by case basis, like in Portland, um, but. Still, but more broadly, I think their ethos hasn't really changed. So I don't know. I just don't know how much overlap there is and how much actual like preference switching and how much it is just kind of we highlight different voices at different times. Yeah, but I've been reading about the uh, the Boogaloo Boys more, and the more I read about them, the more I find them very interesting mm. because there I think there's this belief that they are that they because they are like um like right wing anti government they are right wing anti government radicals kind of. But they're also this weird, diffuse, strange movement 
that really is just united by loving Hawaiian shirts and loving guns and Perfect really for the boardroom dis- and the discotheca and really, and, and really <laughs> wanting a conflict with the state. Yeah, and a I, lot of them are Nazis, but also like not as not all of them. No, I, th- I think the I think that you can trace a lot of this back to uh, a splintering of the militia movement. Honestly, mm-hmm. I, I think the three percenters come out of a uh, come out of the same place that brought us uh, Timothy McVeigh and some of the like protesters at Waco, which is one of the places that McVeigh got radicalized. Uh, and I, I think there's been this kind of uh, this kind of factional split between. What you expect th- this kind of this fall that everybody thinks is coming to look like, and whether you think it's going to be something where just like oh, it's like the purge and the cops don't exist anymore, and you have to like defend your neighborhoods, which is kind of the three percent vibe, or whether the cops are actively inimical to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I-, I feel like the the boogaloo side of that is 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 more radical uh, and and less controllable and also more interesting. Uh, but also definitely a minority there, uh, I, because I, I think it doesn't pair very well with the kind of the militaristic ethos that, like, because I think none of this is separable from from militias. I don't think it's ever been separable from the '90s and Janet Reno. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hussein, we haven't heard much from yeah, you. What I, you what... um, yeah, I was I because there was a lot kind of going on. Um, but the Boogaloo Boys is a like, really interesting one because I've I've been kind of. I've been tracking, well, not really tracking, but I've been kind of looking into what they've been doing for the past few months. Um, and it is interesting because I don't actually think a lot of these people kind of came, I don't think they were, like, when we look at them, I don't think a lot of them came from, like, the Trump MAGA side of things in 2016 and kind of became more and more radicalized. I think that these were people who were sort of disparate to begin with, who were sort of like disillusioned with institutions and institutional politics to begin with. And of course, like they're people who are sort of really influenced by hyper ironic politics. And when you kind of fuse out with people who have been like, who do feel like 2016 was supposed to be the year in which institutions worked for them. And especially like in a cultural sense as well. Right. So these people weren't really talking about, you know, they weren't talking about like institutions the way that think tank people and like Washington DC people think about them. They think about them more in terms of waging culture wars. So their whole idea was that they wanted more, they wanted government, the Trump government to have more Stephen Millers inside it. Hmm. And government issued girlfriends. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like, also, I, th- I think the irony point is really important because I think the guys who don't have irony but do end up in that kind of tendency are just sovereign citizens now. Um, yeah. and they're, they're just as keen to, to shoot cops like, uh, that couple in Vegas. Yeah. And I think, I mean, well, I was just going to like add to that point, which was that, um, or just kind of add to what I was, uh, add to what I was saying, which was that like, these are people who sort of like have always been disparate anyway. So for them, this is just kind of a moment for me. And it's like the way that I see it, I feel like this is more of a moment when as everything is kicking off, like suddenly all this sort of like, I guess, black pill culture sort of kind of emerges into something kind of physical right now i don't know like you know i i in terms of like the boogaloo boys themselves i do think that a lot of it is sort of kind of ironic online flexing so i think a lot of them are just kind of going out posting pictures of themselves um to kind of get kind of clout among their community and everything but that's not to say that there isn't like the more radical tendencies on like here don't have uh, I mean, I, I don't know what the right word is because I don't necessarily think that they are like libertarian in a very classical sense, but I also don't think that they're necessarily like 
they don't necessarily believe that they can make the state work for them in the way that maybe like more radical people on the left think mm. that it can. Like, think that they can. Well, part of their vibe is that I, they don't have to have an answer, right? Like they can yes, be fully exactly, jokified yeah. about this, yeah. and that's part yeah. of what being black pilled means. I think is that you mm. it absolves you of that responsibility to like come up with a countervailing set of institutions, yeah, exactly, or, or even that much of a critique of institutions. You can just look at the results and you can say, "Well, this is clearly fucked," which yeah, it exactly. is. I agree. I agree yeah. with that. All I will so, say is that it's extremely 2020 that there's an armed militia who are all wearing Hawaiian shirts and are called the Boogaloo Boys, which I'm pretty sure is an unsuccessful surf band from the 1970s. Yeah, no, did, did uh, we bring no, this? No, I can tell you what it is. It's because there was a, on 4chan, uh, people would refer to stuff at, at the sequel to anything, like going to the shops as going to the shops to Electric Boogaloo, because they were referencing Family Guy, which was referencing a 1980s movie about dancing to save the community center called Break Two Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, so it's um, referencing yeah, Civil War film. too. Yeah, but yeah. also like, However, I, I should also say very quickly, you're gonna you're gonna like be very angry when you hear this. But the reason why Hawaiian shirts is because Facebook started banning the word boogaloo because they were using it to mean Second Civil War, and so they started using homophones. One of which was Big Luau. Uh, yeah, we are all living in Roland uh, Barthes' world. All the symbols have collapsed. Everything <laughs> is just to everything else there is no more signified anymore i am also going to take this opportunity slightly to drag us back on track because i think well it's very interesting that there is like this slow burning right-wing crisis of legitimacy i think it's also important to acknowledge that it's basically an imaginary one uh that's been sort of sold by by talk radio and fox news that there is this slow rolling takeover of the government by you know marxists or black lives matter or antifud everyone's coming to get you and there's this creating this terror that the government is sort of going to solve or not going to solve and Trump's going to fix it, etc. Yeah, Whereas, you shouldn't have said you were English and then they wouldn't be coming to get you. <laughs> Whereas the crisis of legitimacy on the other side is very much not imaginary. And it, it extends not just, um, it, it's not just the failure of the police to keep people safe. Uh, no, that's not a recent thing. They sort of haven't kept people safe in quite a long time or ever. But let's say the making it much more obvious you know it's the it's the it's the thing of um heightened contradictions the heightened contradictions where the it, the thing we're talking about whether it's a tech company or or the police or whatever it used to like it used to rescue the kittens as well as do all of its evil shit um now it just does the evil shit exclusively the mask is gone the uh, ostensible function has been stripped away completely and it is purely the the brutal face underneath and it's not just the pol the police. It is also, for example, the um, uh, like our that uh, the university system, which has become a way to just like saddle um people in their uh, teens and twenties with like lifetimes of debt. Doesn't it do doesn't really teach you much. Uh, it's uh, well, I mean, you know, present company accepted. Uh, it, or the um, or, or or similarly, like the uh, the employment system where you're you're supposed to sort of have your wages rise throughout your life doesn't even happen anymore. I mean, capital always took a bigger share, but Again, the pretense is gone. And so these legitimacy crises, I think, on that are not the sort of aggrieved white jet ski guy, I think it's super important that as interesting as the former are, is they're imaginary, whereas the latter are, are very real. So I, I want to push back on that just a little bit, because I think there's actually some convergence between the two points of view, which is that on both 
the extreme right, the people who are really freaked out about all this stuff and are like, okay, let's get the guns. And the people on the left who are who are responding to these present circumstances, both of them have internalized a key truth that I think marks them off from the kind of like 90s inculcated media class we were talking about earlier, which is that they both understand that politics isn't everything. Right. Mm. Like that politics is in the way that you set up the economic system, that politics is in the uh, politics is in how you regulate markets, that politics is in what role the police have to play, that politics is in how your employer gets to treat you. And so I think they share that in common in a way that that people who came up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, especially ones who were kind of there at the birth of cable news when when politics really just became entertainment that you watched, um, I think there's kind of a, a weird convergence in the sense that you understand that the people who belong to this moment, who are rebelling in some way against the current moment, understand that politics is in all of that. Like the right got that earlier because they were just kind of, you know, when you're fed Rush Limbaugh for three hours a day, he needs to put politics in everything. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so but now it's kind of the shoes on the other foot. And there's more understanding on in the center left and on the left for sure that like, no, it's just everywhere. Like you've, you've really got to deal with these kind of deep systemic things. If you're going to, if you're going to have a solution, like you can't just put on the Kente stools. Got to be honest with you, Patrick. I think even if I was going at it three hours a day, it would take me a while to eat a whole rush limbo. Yeah. And, and this is actually where also I think we can bring in the attempts that have happened in the last four years to change, to change the democratic and labor parties, to force them to come to terms, to realize the extent to which politics is in everything, right? That's what the Sanders campaign and the Corbyn le- uh, leadership movement and stuff, that's basically what those were based on. Yeah. To a greater or lesser extent, <laughs> how did those thing. go, you know? And, but that's what I mean. Like, yeah. Those were attempts to force those institutions, because those parties are institutions in the same way that these norms are institutions or banks. It is an attempt to force those, par- those institutions, those systems, to try to actually build up their capacity of responses to begin to try to take power and deal with the problems that we have um, and to deal with the problems that we have in all these other institutions. And they basically managed to fight tooth and nail to keep themselves brittle and unreconstructed, yeah. to keep the rest of the system brittle and unreconstructed. A- absolutely. Contradictions machine go brr. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think there's this frequent refrain in the lefty part of that you know nothing ever changes, nothing ever changes, nothing ever changes. It's the same forever, and, and this is basically why is that powerful institutions facing looming legitimacy crises crises have elected to just not absorb the shocks meaningfully because it would be harmful for the people at the top to do so. Mm. Well, like also, it's the same reason why police reform doesn't work. It's the same reason why eight can't wait doesn't work. Is that like the culture that is is now so strong? Whether that's whether you're talking about like Labour Party uh, staff or whether you're talking about police officers, that you try to you put them in a room for 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 nine hours and you do the like implicit bias training, or you give them the results of an election where like a vast majority of people uh, supported something that was fundamentally inimical to their worldview. And they were just like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to like pretend to do it for a bit, and then I'm going to laugh about it later. Well, the trouble is, all these Bernie bros, you know, they want the Democrats to adopt policies that voters will actually vote for, but they don't understand that's actually inimical to the whole point of the Democratic Party, which is to give a job to your nephew to develop an app which tells Pete Buttigieg things to say, like the greatness of our business is in the diversity of our industry. And, you know, that's how it works. Listen, that's just right. how to be to dream America is. <laughs> um, and so, look, Patrick, it wouldn't it wouldn't be an episode of TF with Patrick Wyman on it if we didn't engage in some comparative history. Um, 
So I want us to talk now about some of these crises of political legitimacy stemming from institutional rot, this inability to react to circumstances uh, that have happened in the past. And the first one that I'm going to do is going to be one that you'll be well familiar with. I mean, you'll be well familiar with all of these, but especially familiar with this, uh, which is the assassination of Tiberius Gracchus in 133 BC. Oh, fuck, we're going to have the Silurites on our ass now. (laughs) (laughs) Silurites. Yeah. They, they, the they are a thing. Stillerist. So there is there is a uh, an acquaintance of mine who has been pushing the Sulla meme, and ju- just like whenever something happens, he just posts a picture of Sulla and sends it to people. Like he's been doing this for about the last four or five months, ever since the start of the pandemic, and it is picking up steam. So take that as you will. <laughs> mm. So uh, can you can you ex- uh, just um, for for the benefit of our listeners, can you explain? Why the Sulla meme might be particularly appropriate now. Uh, so Sulla was, um, I think it's, it, you might call him the first real reactionary. Uh, I think so. Sulla's whole thing was like he's going to bring an end to decades of political disorder and just reimpose the old system. Uh, and the way that he did that was by spilling a lot of blood, killing a lot of people. It's, it's interesting. Uh, Marius was actually implicated in a money laundering scheme involved in a car wash in Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do like that. Like there's a there's a. A, a meme that's in dialogue with this, or like that is opposed to this, and that is the smug picture of James Connolly that says, "Oh no, I warned you about socialism, didn't I?" So I did. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, no, you you have to like, uh, it's entirely entirely apt to go back to history and like find find people to be smug with. Sorry, so Sulla. Yeah, so Sulla's whole thing was, we're just going to take it back to how it was before. Um, He instituted a whole series of basically constitutional reforms in the aftermath of spilling a very great deal of blood and uh, picking out a whole class of talented youngsters who would go on to eventually destroy the Republic. Like, so in the process of trying to make things the way they were before, because Sulla just does all this and then he retires. Like, he just goes and he goes off and he has like a very... Yeah, he he goes off and he has a very active and diverse sex life um, in in his David Cameron. Yeah, it's a Sola Sola really a fascinating character. Uh, But so he goes and does this, and then he just retires, and he's like, "Okay, I wash my hands of this. You've got the system now. You can just preserve it forever." Not not really paying attention to the fact that he had just introduced a whole swath of the Roman elite to like, oh no, you can just kill your opponents. That's like that's within the realm of possibility. That is now a an imaginable thing for us in the context of how our political system works. And so I think that's one of the relevant pieces for the present day is like, as we're watching all of this stuff happen, suddenly the range of the possible has expanded and you've got whole big groups of people who are, who are experiencing things like fighting riot cops. Like, Oh, you can just fight the cops. Like, that's just a thing you can do now. Mm-hmm. Um, or like, Oh, if we, re- if we do this wholly peaceful protest, they're probably still going to shoot rubber bullets and tear gas at us. Um, and you know, on, on the flip side of it, you have Tom Cotton broadcasting a call for, uh, no quarter to insurrectionists in, in the New York Times, like, or yeah. a slightly cleaned up version of that in the New York Times. Like that now is also a part of the, the living memory of people who are going to be shaping the political system for decades down the line. I think that's, that's why the Sola thing matters. That's why. 
the end of the Roman Republic is a good parallel for us is it's like none of these things happen in isolation. Like the the institutions are going to shift even no matter how ossified you try and make them, no matter how much intentionality you you put into trying to keep everything the way it is, uh the actors within the system are going to see the shifts and they're going to think of different ways to do things. And so here's actually, this is, this, this is another example of kind of why sort of I bring up Gracchus specifically, which is that like it, it, at the time of the Gracchan reforms were, all, were basically land reform. So, you know, somehow the CIA said like <laughs> yeah. one Guido back in yeah. time, take over <laughs> and kill him. Um, but so, Argentum Corp. <laughs> so uh, the Gracchi, two brothers, b- both patricians, were champagne socialists. They were trying to create, basically do this massive program of land reform because the Latifundia, who I, we talked about last episode, were basically uh, these massive farmers who were able to, every time a soldier would go out campaigning, uh, if it was a bad harvest, they would just be able to buy his farm without him knowing and then throw him, a Roman citizen, into destitution. Uh, and this was happening more and more and more, and a smaller and smaller number more of more. massive landowners. Many such were getting, cases. We're getting way, way richer. And so the the Gracchan reforms were basically saying, um, let's limit the amount of land someone can someone can hold. And they were tribunes of the plebs, and they basically um, both Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus, uh, when while trying to solve an institutional problem in Rome that was causing. Tons of Roman citizens to become destitute um, at the, uh, let's say, but to the great benefit of like, you know, eight guys, um, they, um, they, they were just uh, assassinated effectively. And so you can, and I think that I, I sort of, every time I look at about the history of the end of the Roman Republic, it's like, yeah, the assassination of the Gracchi is always like a big part of the beginning of this. It's like, this is almost... It, I mean, this wasn't the crossing the Rubicon moment because, well, the crossing the Rubicon moment actually wasn't a metaphor for this, but this was kind <laughs> of a little bit like that, where it was like, no, the the possibility, the possibility for the for this political system to keep delivering broad based prosperity to the people it has promised broad based prosperity to, is now gone, and we have no interest in fixing it. Yeah, and th- you know, historians argue about the extent to which the Gracchi were actually trying to solve like a, a genuine problem with this? Like, were these farmers really being turfed off their land while they were off on campaign? And answers vary. Some would say, no, this wasn't a problem at all. This was uh, this was an invented issue um, that the Gracchi were using to try and uh, like as a wedge for the Gracchi to try and give themselves power within the system. Others would say, no, this actually was a real issue. I think to some extent, it doesn't actually matter whether it was an issue or not. Um, what matters is that people thought it was an issue and that it the fact that it was a thing that these people um used to get either to get traction or as a thing to solve means that it had valence. Like people were concerned about it. It spoke to some kind of broader ideological conflict or some broader crisis of faith within the system itself. And what matters is the response to it, how the, how the other Roman elites responded to the challenge the Gracchi were giving far more than the, the, the underlying problem. It's that they would not even countenance these tiny little changes. Like the Roman aristocrats were still going to be rich as shit. Like they were still going to have massive opportunities everywhere, all, all across the Roman world and and beyond, to profit from their burgeoning empire. They were still going to have access to the highest rates of military mobilization in the ancient world. Roman farmers were still going to leave their farms behind and go out to fight whatever bar, whatever group outside the technical borders of Rome was going to be around. They were still going to take slaves in huge numbers. They were still going to take plunder in huge numbers. The Roman elite was still going to benefit from this. All they had to do was give just a little bit. 
And the fact that they were not willing to do that is the salient point about the Gracchi, I think, far more than anything else. Yeah. Um, so I, I know it's been uh, it's been me talking quite a bit. Uh, Hussein, I want to get you in here before we move on to Watt Tyler. Uh, you can move on. Like I was really I, I have like very little knowledge of classics. So like I was just sort of yeah. listening. Sorry, you can be well, right. as, as a resident classicist, I'll just say that my brain is now infected with the concept of your Roman da wandering around the corner. <laughs> the you see, the problem is, go all these fucking statues and naked boys. There's not a single statue of Winston Churchill. It's all got North FC, except he really like he really likes the red chariot team. I do. It's Campania FC. Yeah, yeah. I was, was going to ask, like, what's the, what was like the Roman equivalent of North FC? But there we go. Yeah, chariot racing. <laughs> I, I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking about like the the concept of Roman liberals, and I'm thinking of like deranged priest Eric Garland being like, "Ah, oh, well, it's time. It's time for some Sibylline books theory." <laughs> no, I yet t- more, I think I yet said- more violence at the Cisalpine Gaul Transalpine Gaul Derby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just I keep thinking of the uh, you know, the, the the town crier in in the HBO show Rome, which is just one of my favorite things ever. He'd be like. This uh, this announcement sponsored by the Guild of Bakers. Good Roman bread for good Romans. Uh, so I was <laughs> tweeting Casper about how mattresses. much I, I was tweeting about how much I enjoyed the HBO show Rome on a rewatch, and somebody responded, "Oh man, the 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 news the newsreader guy was the best part of that. The guy, the actor who played him, found the tweet and replied to it. He's like, I would 100 percent do that role again. It's like this." <laughs> I think that might have been me because <laughs> you oh my, god. <laughs> oh my god. It was like the best notification ever to wake up to. I'm like, oh, I love that guy. He's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was me. Oh my god. Oh, so we're just okay. I I love like just not ever being able to keep track of who's who online. Just... Um no, I, I I think about that character all the time. But I think let's like thinking about this though, right? I think there it, the point is that there was, an, if we think about this in terms of legitimacy crises and institutions, the there was an instant, there was there was a dream that was Rome. Whisper with me now, brother. Uh, there was an institution that was Rome, um, and it was not able. It was not able to absorb a a shock in terms of a demand for something else. It was. It had to. It had. Oh, its only response was arrows in the quiver. It was not. It was not able to do any, anything other than just say no. Because it was so geared to support the people at the top, rather than to mm-hmm. even at the expense of maintaining itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's like it's all about perception and what people think they're owed. And there was a wide swath of Roman society that felt like they were the the end of the bargain was not being held up. That the elites were not doing the thing that they had promised to do, which is to deliver the, the, on the promise of prosperity for everybody. And like again, it doesn't. It's like. When conservatives especially complain about like, well, how can they talk about economic inequality? Like, you know, everybody's standard of living is going up. Like, we've got all this technology now. It doesn't like that's not actually relevant. What matters is the perception of it and whether people think that they're getting their fair side of the bargain. Like, it doesn't matter if somebody gets a new iPhone. What matters is, do I feel like this is the iPhone I was promised? Mm. And I think like it's we can. We can take that that uh, that general um, conclusion and then step a little bit forward in time uh, to Watt Tyler uh, in 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 England and maybe a few more of the peasant uprisings throughout Europe that were happening in the aftermath of the Black Death. So, can you give us a little bit of an intro uh, to these to these guys? Yeah. So there's. Uh... 
after the Black Death um, is the golden age of peasant uprisings and and revolts in Europe. So a scholar named Samuel Cohn um, actually did just a quantitative study and he's like, oh, yeah, no, there's you go from having about two documented uprisings a year to having something like eight documented uprisings a year after the Black Death. So it's clear that there's some kind of stress being put on the basic social uh, on the on the basic social structures after the Black Death. And the biggest thing is, again, the tension between what people expect, what they think they deserve and what they're being given. So one of the things that the Black Death does is because you go from having a situation where there isn't enough land for everybody who wants it to suddenly you have tons of land because half the population's dead. Um, there isn't that kind of crunch anymore. And the people who survive, um, their labor is much more valuable. It's a lot harder for a Lord to demand services for this whole kind of group of, you would call them like enterprising yeomen or like upwardly mobile peasants. The few decades after the black death, despite the fact that, you know, you're worried about dying of plague and the weather's getting worse and your harvests aren't, aren't as reliable as they would have been 40 years before. Um, there's a lot of room to move up in the world. And this creates a basic kind of tension where you have these people who think, who are doing better than they ever were before in living memory. Um, they hope for even better for their children. And you have authorities that are trying to reimpose labor obligations, who are taxing them, um, who are very uh, content to go off and fight wars in France that aren't going especially well and they want you to pay for it. Um, this creates a whole series of kind of tensions within the system, like a multi, a, a multifaceted series of j- pretty justified complaints. Oh, and also things like don't let the tax collectors sexually assault our daughters. Like that's a that's a bad thing. You should probably not do that. Um, so you have kind of this this combination of structural complaints, um, concepts of like representation within the political system. Like if we're going to be paying for the for the war for you nobles to go off and like and, and fight French knights, like you should be doing better at it uh, than than you are. Like that's like you shouldn't you shouldn't be getting you shouldn't be getting beaten all the time if we're going to be paying our, our valuable hard-earned money for this. Uh, so God, all parallels. of these. Yeah, so you have all of these kinds of tensions uh, that are also then combined with, you know, kind of quotidian complaints about like the unfairness of the social system. And it's like, it's these, it's important to note. I think the thing that really strikes, that's really striking about this particular uprising and a lot of the peasants' rebellions is like, it's not the people who are lowest on the totem pole who are the ones who are rebelling. It's people who are doing reasonably well, but think they should be doing better um, and who are really feeling the sting of kind of the built in unfairness of the system. Those are the ones who are the most likely to actually do something about it. And in this case, what they did about it was drive off some tax collectors, um, go off and find the the local officials that they really didn't like, cut their heads off, stick them on poles. And then all, all of a sudden you've got the biggest uh, peasants rebellion in a hundred years. Mm-hmm. And I, I think then what we, what are the things we can learn? Uh, if, if, even if just from this one, not from, from the other ones, which we'll also talk about, right? Is what you talk about, about exemplary violence. Um, and that, th- and you say uh, that this brings us back around to the core topic: policing. Peasants' rebellions were all were met with overwhelming force. It was about reminding the rebels about. It was about reminding the rebels of who was in charge, about where they were in the social and political order, and whose job it was to enforce that order. This was all done in public, explicitly and intentionally. So the violence was exemplary. Yeah. So when you put down a peasant's rebellion, you didn't just um, kill the peasants responsible or send them back to their villages. You picked out the ones you wanted to make an example of, and then you did horrible stuff to them. So like mm, the, after red the, hot iron crowns time. 
Yeah, red hot iron crowns, um, heads on spikes, um, drawing and quartering, like rip out their rip out their guts in front of a yeah. in front of nice a cheering crowd. Little Britain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, the, the, the gist is, you, you have to don't be afraid to get creative with it. You yeah. do some oh, yeah. upright citizens brigade shit. To, like you are Charles the Bad repressing the Jacquery, and you just decide to like be yourself. And you do some yes and, and you'd be like yes and uh, tear the guts out. Yes and hang people from. Walls. Making oh, someone watch like... an improv show is possibly worse than any of that. So, fair enough. <laughs> I, like... I, I think I heard gibbet. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, yeah, so like after the 1381 Peasants Rebellion, they just dragged a bunch of peasants behind their horses until there was nothing left. Um, one French lord after the Jacquerie, uh, like he he found the peasant father and son who had uh, burned down his manor house, and then he just cut their hamstrings. Um, and let them like, but you don't do that because you're, you're trying to like restore because you're just like, okay, this is the the consequence for your action. You do it because you're trying to remind people who's in charge. And so like when I watch police just in front of God and everybody, uh, beating the crap out of protesters with their truncheons and, uh, and shooting rubber bullets at point blank range and tear gassing, it's like, you're not doing that because you're trying to restore order you're trying to do that because you want to head off the next protest because Hmm. you're trying to like remind people of how the social order is supposed to work what's interesting to me is the extent to which uh that that fails to deter people and i'm thinking about the um the austrian peasants revolt which had the slogan on like black banners with a skull it's moose sign it must be on the basis that like yeah even if we win they're gonna torture and kill all of us which is exactly what happened the austrian peasants wanted those tax inspectors banned from their basement i do think about the extent to which to which uh, uh, revolt or insurrection is is something that is like that exists because the conditions become physically intolerable to people, mm-hmm. um, and and also as a result, the the extent to which exemplary violence goes both ways, right? Like you 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 make an example of some tax collectors, perhaps, um, and 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 that has something of a sort of um, a morale building effect. If 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 you are a peasant, if you just see the guy who gets to like kick you around all, all the time, just like being roasted on a spit or whatever. Yeah, it, it's it, it really does go both ways. I mean, I think that's a really good point. And, and like, there one of the things to I think to bear in mind about policing is the extent to which we all are aware that it's built on the consent of the people who are being policed. And like how few police there actually are. And so if they want to start doing the thing where where it's like, okay, we're we're just doing violence now, there are a lot more people who are being policed than there are actual police. And so that's the point at which you reach some kind of tipping point where either they've got a call for an additional repressive apparatus. I mean, in this case, most like the National Guard of the military in the United States. Um and then you're talking about a whole other series of kind of splits and, and spiraling conflicts from there. Like those are the kinds of scenarios that that you get into in our civil society that you didn't necessarily have in the Middle Ages, right? Like there weren't those multiple layers, and it's what makes the use of repressive violence, I think, far more dangerous for the people doing it today than would have been the case, uh, you know, six or seven hundred years ago. Like you really could just kill the peasants, and and that would be the end of it. And now I think there is less capacity for that because. So the you have a kind of a division of of power within the repressive apparatus, or what could be the potential uh, mm. uh, repressive apparatus. But then that also just kind of on that note, like even 
it, to kind of go back to our the initial thing about like institutions, it also kind of puts a pressure on those institutions to like obscure like the inherent violence of them. So like, oh yeah, yeah. right. So like, so you could kind of you know you could when we talk like when we talk about like a peasants' revolt, your we've obviously like spoken about uh, like brutal and violent suppression that can be very open and can be accepted and also can like you can you know leverage people into s- supporting the state. Um, whereas this time around, because of because of like the existence of institutions, like there's more pressure on those institutions to kind of obscure a violence that is just as brutal and just as violent, but one which kind of, in order to navigate, requires an understanding of a much more bureaucratic process. And I guess like the thing that I have observed, like watching these processes and everything, is how you have like the class of people who do believe in the inherent value of institutions and their inherent necessity in order to like survive to basically mm. kind of advance this argument that says that, you know, we can, we can make a more fair, we can make the violence more fair and we can make the violence more democratic, like classic, and we can make it like slightly more transparent without sort of yeah. like recognizing that these types of measures, which are designed to make the process seem more tangible to people who've really like bought into the notion of like, necessary institutions like you're only kind of adding to the obs- like obfuscation right like I, I i would argue that that also serves uh, a useful function of radicalization right is that like if if you if if your liege lord like beheads your entire family there's no hypocrisy there that's a very that's a very upfront uh like declaration of intent if your liege lord beheads your entire family and then sends a public information officer to be like yeah no actually that didn't happen and also I feared for my life. That that's kind of that that's I feared for my life and the and the lives of my fellow yeoman farmers. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> twenty one foot row. We could have had a pike. Uh, literally, like I I feel as if there's having having these sort of institutions that have a different source of legitimacy and that have at least these nods to transparency. When that breaks down, that's much more uh, that's much more evident. Is my thinking. Mm. I, yeah, I, I buy that entirely because I think people are especially sensitive to being sold a line, a, a line of crap um, about what these things are about, what these institutions are trying to do. Like, it's very hard, I, I think, when your firsthand experience of policing is now, again, for like a wide swath of people, even if you haven't participated in these protests, you've seen the video of police brutality. Right. Like you've seen it like it's much harder to put the mask back on and say, oh, no, these are just the friendly guys who go around and they like run the police athletic league or whatever. Like, no, these are like these are roided up guys who are swinging truncheons at you. And like you, it's really hard. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's much harder to make kind of the the institutional reform argument if it really seems like it's rotten all the way down. And. So no, I, I think there's a lot to that. Like there are a lot of people who were out there like marching and, and protesting peacefully who were like, ah, you know, I actually think we do have to abolish the police now. Um, yeah. But like also I would say not just not just rotten all the way down, but all the way up too. Mm-hmm. like it, it, in the case of the Jacquerie, like a lot of that was done in the name of the king. Right. Like yeah. the, the, the king is being betrayed by this this class of degenerate nobles. Right. And if, if, if only the king knew, then he would save us. Uh, whereas if you have the president being able to tweet about <laughs> about how much you should be brutalized it's it's a lot harder to make that argument 
And you have to go back to the kind of the legitimate, the legitimacy thing of being like, oh, well, we're, we're going to arrest him and put in Joe Biden, who's going to be nice. <laughs> yeah, it, it does lead you to ask some kind of broader questions about the salience of the institutions themselves. I, and I mean, I, I think that's why it's a crisis of faith, right? Like, what are what are the institutions that still work? Well, I mean, if you're a, if you're into finance, the Fed, the Fed seems to be doing its job. Um, and then you have, I guess, the military. Yeah, That's- though so far zero crowds shot into well, um, in beating the world record holders of Russia. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually going to say we, this. This transit. This moves on to our our third historical example, which is more recent, and where the question of the military then emerges. Right. So the in the Arab uprisings in the 2010, specifically in Tunisia, um, you know, uh, to a little bit of background, uh, it was all kicked off. Uh, after Mohamed Bouazizi was a fruit vendor in rural Tunisia, uh, was a, assaulted by and had his cart broken by a policewoman because he could not afford to pay her a bribe. Uh, and it's worth remembering that in this case, it was the directly regime controlled security forces, the police who were comfortable and used to meeting out violence against citizens who meted out the violence against citizens. And the army, for a wide variety of reasons, uh, demurred from doing so. And it did so in, in several but not all cases. Hmm. Well, that's, that's why we're going to have to talk about Egypt uh, as, as like the sort of the fulcrum of the Arab Spring as being the case where the army did, in fact, go onto the streets with tanks. And the way that they did that was to like uh, to to build another legitimizing function for themselves as an institution of being like, um, you know, M- Mubarak is 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 degenerate. He's he's hurting the people of Egypt. We are the guardians of the people of Egypt, and therefore politics is over. Um, because d- don't worry about it. We and, we and will the, keep you safe. And the interesting comparator here is, and I think I talked about this on the free episode. You want to always look at which institutions have the most flexibility and capacity to act. And so, for example, it's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, Tunisia went sort of, I'm not going to say it went like, super well, but it went slightly better. Went better than, better than yeah. Egypt and much better than Libya. Yeah, went better than the others is partly because, you know, the, um, the UGTT, like Tunisia has a, like, an incredibly strong tradition of trade unionism. And one of the most flexible institutions in Tunisia was the UGTT, the sort of countrywide, very active leftist uh, trade union bloc that has like continuing to call general strikes until about as recently as a year ago over a proposal for the you know the centrist government to not give uh, public sector uh, workers a pay rise hmm. right um and so we uh, what i think here what was instructive about about this this scenario is the answer to what happens depends on which of the systems and institutions have variety have the you capacity know, to act have flexibility can move you know it's really funny and what's really trash future is that in Egypt, one of the institutions or one of the sets of institutions that did have that variety and did actually very well out of out of the Arab Spring for a while were essentially North FC guys, were football hooligans, were firms of ultras um, who were able to meet violence with violence and who were able to like have a negotiable position relative to the police and the army and the protesters. And you saw a lot of the time that a lot of the people actually uh, like fighting riot police in Egyptian cities were these firms of, were these firms of ultras. Um, so that, that, that in itself is like a, an interesting, an interesting case study in like power structures and institutions. Hate well, the government yeah, I mean, love that- Islam simple as. <laughs> yeah, basically, basically. I mean, we can talk about the Muslim Brotherhood too, but that, yeah, it's East FC. Uh, sorry, Patrick. Mm. Please carry on. 
Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think that that's a really interesting um, that's a really interesting point, because you have to think about one of the one of the defining features of especially American society in the 21st century is the lack of voluntary organizations. It's the lack of these kinds of institutions that we would have that are non-state, non-corporate, um, just people getting together to do things together. It's like that people made fun of like um, urban millennials like 10 years ago for like joining kickball leagues. But that's the kind of stuff people used to do all the time was play sports together, like, um, you know, join not necessarily like country clubs, but like the Knights of Columbus and, uh, and, and like Elks Lodges and stuff like that. Those institute bowling leagues. That's, I mean, the yeah. famous book, Bowling yeah. Alone, right? Like, or Putnam. The, yeah, I mean, those- riding the little Shriner cars at the line of riot cops. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but like those institutions increasingly are, are very hard to find. In American culture, like we don't have those things to fall back on um, to to give you some sort of structure and organization. And like for centuries, that was a really salient feature of American society was the the variety and scope of those kinds of voluntary organizations. So I don't think like there is no American analog. I don't think to something like to something like clubs of football ultras. I like American sports fandom is so much less organized and diffuse. Um, it's it's interesting. I I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't know what to do. Know. With that. I, I mean, cut, cut to cut to ten years in the future, and we like have a separate principality administered by the Seattle Sounders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, American sports fandom is is just it's it's all about like you know having a having a bowl of um having a bowl of uh, of hot wings. Well, you and your three friends all get sloppy top from your partners while wearing like sports socks. Oh, that was <laughs> such right. a picture. But no, um, oh. so I think what 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 I take from this here, right? Is what and what I, one of the things I think we're trying to, to communicate here is that it is very hard to look at these at these situations all at once and in detail. It's very hard to look at at the long term economic and social forces that are pushing different institutions up against one another that are causing. Um, you might say, uh, vexed motivations within those institutions that are draining some and empowering others. And if you look at, but if you look at that long term, and if you try to think about who has the flexibility, who is being brittle, um, you can try to begin creating a map of understanding, especially if you look through at history, at what exactly is actually going on. Because I think there's a whole cottage industry of prognosticators and charlatans who are all trying to say exactly what it means in a way that appeals mostly to them and their interests. And if you look at, at, at Rome, if you look at medieval peasants, at the end of the Roman Republic, medieval peasants revolts and, and the Arab Spring, you can see that these are complicated and institutional questions with decades, if not centuries long roots in, and, and, and with, um, and where you have to look at at broad capabilities of forces, not just individual motivations or Marxist professors are saying this or etc. Yeah, well, it's, once again, we're back to the historical thing of uh, I think it was Zhang Zemin who said that who was asked in like the nineties about the Tiananmen Square massacre and you know what the legacy of it was, and he said it's too soon to tell. Um, but you, you don't know. Just uh, write, write a thesis about it in fifty years and get back yeah. to me. <laughs> mm. um, that's something I've we- been thinking about a lot like with what's happening right now is you don't know of the people who are watching all this stuff happen what their takeaways are going to be you don't know like is there somebody who is there somebody who got shot by a rubber bullet who's like well I guess that means I need a gun of my own or is it uh, like 
a right wing observer who's looking at this and is like, we can never have this kind of disorder in our cities again. And so their response is to try to build a political movement to ensure that you never have this kind of dissent again. Like, we don't know how this is going to play. We don't know what kind of lessons people are drawing, what they're, what, what they're going to think are their, are their next steps. It's going to take us a while to figure it out. I mean, I think we're just now figuring out that, like, you have a, a whole generation of people who came of age amid the Great Recession who are, like, fundamentally scarred as economic actors by that experience. Like it's taken us a long time to think about that. I'm not sure that that would have been your takeaway if you were thinking about it in 2010, you know? So uh, having talked a little bit about history, I'm going to do a few quick hits of specific examples of specific institutional crises now. Um, So the first one I wanted to look at is that unemployment is currently up above 20% in the US and UK GDP is looking to drop by a full quarter. Uh, taken into consideration with the high performance of the stock market and the uh, huge and growing incomes and the ultra wealthy, um, the the fact is something something needs to happen to get the money uh, from there to the people who need it to live, or else you know they're going to start realizing that you know, they're continuing to live is incompatible uh, with you know current sort of you know structures. We're gonna we're and, gonna have a means tested Anona, <laughs> <laughs> and so. Ah. The UK government is now going to relax two meter distancing and beg people to get out and go to the shops, which is like the main thing it's going to do to keep its society stable, despite top medical advisors threatening to resign if they do so. And so if you want to look at this as a, as a sense of institutional rot, you can say that, look, the only institution we have for distributing money, which is essentially a commodity that allows you to benefit from the work of others, uh, to people with more than of it they could ever need, to people with less of it than they need to survive, is to like channel it through, I don't know, Ryman the Stationer or Target. Or <laughs> <laughs> like, you, ha- you have to keep the economy running. It is your patriotic duty to buy some of those nice, like, hardback journals. Yeah. Like foam <laughs> I need to say something because Riley, fucking Riley, has been like diminishing the value of Ryman's for too long. Like I've seen yeah. the fucking tweets. I've seen the He's Ryman's a staples great. guy. Ryman is a yeah, Ryman is a great place to get not so affordable stationery, but conveniently. Um, yeah, it's a great place to shoplift between three and five every uniball. This is like better places to like talk about this like monsoon, for example, the the fashion boutique monsoon or Muji, right? Muji is like a great example of oh, this. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, yeah anyway, I, I was also very surprised that the government haven't released one of their like gauche advertising campaigns in the vein of like clean for the queen. Um, it's like, you know, just like shop for the prince or something like that. It's yeah. very important that just you a- get the coronavirus while buying some, <laughs> some excellent casuals in phase eight. Yeah, just just a massive picture of like the r- most recent photo of Prince Philip, where he looks like the crypt keeper. <laughs> so, but w- why I see this as important to talk about in terms of institutional rot in the way that we've been defining it is that we are is that we have a a system whether that's a work and pension system an employment system all these things tied up together that are all about giving people you know the like state issued uh, currency they need to like buy the things they need to survive and when faced with the when faced with the requirement of people still needing it but if they have to go out to get it ordinarily they'll i don't know probably be killed uh by a virus uh they've said well we don't have the institutional flexibility to do anything else. So it looks like everyone's going to have to like, like the boomers Omaha beach is Westfield. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's or a golden corral, depending on your uh, depending on your your preferences. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, just just dying from the non sneeze guarded salad bar. That's yeah, exactly. A distinct possibility. Like, yeah, I mean, so there is an extent to which the pandemic is a legitimacy crisis. And I, I think this is what I'm going to write about next. But it's like if you watch not just the federal government, but every level of, of government in the United States fail to address a public health crisis because it lacks either the political will or the state capacity to do so. I mean, past a certain point, that's basically the same thing, right? Like if you don't, if you don't have the political will to actually use what's at your, what's at your disposal, you don't actually have the state capacity anyway. So like when you watch it do that and then it demands taxes from you and then it like six, the, the, it's, it's goon squad on you when you, when you get mad about, um, you know, the state mandated death of a of a member of a, an ethnic minority like if that's your experience of it and the state is just not doing its thing it's just going to continue sending you out there to to you know buy shit at target like that's a legitimacy crisis because what is the state doing what what end of the bargain is it holding up here like that's the that to me is the way in which the pandemic is is most salient as a polit- in a political sense is like it has a job to do it can't do it so what are we to make of the state? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's if what what always what strikes me is that the the solutions are ob- solutions are are obvious and within yes. the grasp of the state to do. It's things that they've even done before. You know, tax and spend. Uh, uh, it's something the British government is doing through the furlough scheme uh, currently, right? But it's it really wants to stop doing um, mm. like these. We can do these things. It's just it has been decided by the people in control of them that, oh, I have this button. I have this big button that will go a long way towards ameliorating most of the uh, most of this problem. I just will not push it. They want to push the other button. The, uh, the other button is women be shopping. they want to turn up the women they want to turn up the women be shopping dial uh and they've they've worn all the text off the racism button uh but there sits there sits the redistribution button still in its original packaging because we would rather this civilization collapse than push it well, yeah, that's that, that, that's your material causes for you, right? Yeah. Is we 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 live in not just a society, but we live in one of those trolley problem graphics where the trolley that's about to run over a bunch of people is just stacked full of Primark bags. Yeah, the, redistrib- <laughs> the redistribution button is actually under a big glass case that's marked "Break Glass in Case of Jeremy Crobney Anti-Semitism." <laughs> um, actually, the Gracchi were doing tropes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, it's, it is. It, I think that it's 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 helpful to understand also that institutional rot occurs when I think there is a an intentional dismantling of a capacity to act. Mm-hmm. You know, we have we have removed our we have de- whether through defunding or through simply simple pig-headed refusal. We have uh, there has essentially a class of uh, political and economic and and, and so on leaders. You know, your whether that's opposition politicians like Keir Starmer or Boris Johnson or your standard garden variety reactionaries, Trump, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or the, the even like um, you know, like like big big investors and stuff. All of all the powerful people are just like, well, our stake in society, and this kind of goes back to what we talked about in the first episode, right? It's just it's not really there anymore. Mm. We don't need to hit the redistribution button because we have a private security force and a moon base. 
Yeah. Well, my 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 question, and this is this is mostly for Patrick, but like. Uh, to what extent, what, what levers are then left for you if you want to pull any? Um, ca can you just do some like uh, some nice games? Can you do some like charity games? Can you like distract people by invading Batavia or making being trans illegal? Um, th I mean, they're trying, right? Like they're mm -hmm. they're very much trying to like let's get sports back on. Um, let's let it let's literally hand out Panamet Kirkenses, right? Like that's so that's one option. Another, yeah, is like step up the bigotry. Like let's give people somebody to blame. You can like they're trying that too. Like let's blame the whole let's blame the Chinese for the virus thing is a, a literal like please please don't look at the man behind the curtain thing. That's exact that's that's exactly what it is. I mean there, there is a playbook and they're literally going through every piece of it and trying to avoid the the conclusion of like you know, there's that there's an, a broader institutional issue at play here. So, I mean, it, it's the repeated attempt, I think, especially in the United States, where this plays into a long history of what you might call toxic individualism. But just to frame all of this as being about individual choices, individual responsibility and individual action when they're not as a collective action problem. Like, look, man, like I bought all the kettlebells I can buy. I, I've bought all the I've bought all the home fitness equipment I can I can fit in my place at this you point. Remove the shirt, the sleeves from yeah, all your shirts. I have no sleeves left. There's nothing more I can do <laughs> on that front. Like at some point, you're gonna have to treat this as a thing that requires like some sort of nationalization of like production of uh, of protective equipment, some sort of like distribution, uh, some sort of distribution of goods, some sort of distribution of money. Um, you're gonna have to start thinking in those terms because like we can't just hit keep hitting the women be shopping button as you put it because <laughs> there's like there are just limits to that. Like it's it's a demand crisis. Like if we're not all gonna be out there together, like if consumer behavior has changed, which it has, and it changed even before the stay at home orders, because people don't want to get sick and die. Like that changes the way that people act. It changes the way they spend money. It changes where they go. It changes how they do things. Like given that, that, that state of affairs, you can't just put up the bat signal and be like, all right, everybody, let's get back out there and spend money and expect that to solve things. Like at some point you're either going to run into a recession slash depression, um, a wave of mass death, or um or some kind of revolt. Those are Let's the basically three, the three for options. Three, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and probably some combination of all three because they're interrelated. You know, like it's mm. it's not like these are just in, we can't just be like economists and try and make independent models where we're like let's explore the mass death scenario. Um, mm. They're all going to play together in unhelpful and uh, mm. dangerous ways. Me like, mean meanwhile, my constant back of head screaming about climate change is. Uh, oh yeah. That's yeah, still well, happening. Here's the thing, right? The, like, we talked we talked about Tunisia and Egypt. Those were in no small part climate related, um, uh, like like social revolutions. You know, these were also they were. It was a combination of conditions had become intolerable, uh, in many ways driven by the IMF um, in Tunisia, especially. Uh, so, in becoming an IMF poster child for the region. Um, ben Ali had broken half of what a lot of political scientists call the authoritarian bargain, which is basically UBA political, all keep the public sector jobs flowing. Mm -hmm. And once that excited sort of was, for that to happen in Saudi, by the way, parody mm. redacted. Once that, but once so once that bargain was broken, then uh, all it took was the slow and steady pressure of what, like six years without a proper winter rainfall mm -hmm. uh, in in that in in the region. And then it's no small wonder that 
rather that the that the police are demanding more and more bribes and the people who are required to pay them are less and less able to pay like, them also and, and 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 that the and that the political system which is not which is just which is not able to imagine transformation of the scale required to face the problem simply falls over and i feel like you know we we haven't really we haven't really understood the enormity of what's happening here. No, but like also, what's very funny to me is since we're doing a, a micro level analysis here, just hitting the big repression button in the middle of May, it beautiful weather, uh, nobody's getting rained on, and it, you want to hit the button that says, "Okay, nobody go outside ever." Uh, that that to me is a tremendous piece of uh, a tremendous piece of work. Uh, but so I, I have one one more because I, I see I know we're going long. I was going to do a couple more, but I just want to do one more, mm. um, which is another UK example because uh, this is we're recording this in the, on the anniversary of the Grenfell Tower fire, and I just I noted uh, the 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 response to it from Ten Downing Street, and I think because I think we can think about the Grenfell response again, like we defined institutions at the beginning as an institution, a set of rules and expectations, um, and the institutions. Uh, are, that we have around housing are not designed to keep the people who were living in Grenfell and made homeless homed, except as at a minimum, and certainly not if it means expending anything less than the minimum necessary resources on them. Um, and tonight, Downing Street, tonight, uh, Downing Street is lit up green in the memory of those who lost their lives in the Grenfell tragedy three years ago. They tweet, "We oh, remain I it was committed of the to Joker." <laughs> we, remain, we remain committed to uncovering the causes of this tragedy and ensuring it is never repeated. The guy who's done this, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, this is this got me really thinking about gestural politics and crises of legitimacy because that's also why we had fairies doing donuts in the Thames because the uh, the, the, the UK political system generally and the Tories specifically are like. Uh, like yeah. Characteristically unable What's... to do anything but keep commissioning a report until it says it looks like it was socialism and the yeah. free market well, somehow. Who can say? Maybe it was elves. Well, what is what is a good classical example of gestural politics? I'm trying to think. <laughs> I personally am just loving the Tory government fucking throwing a pint glass at Grenfell Tower and then going, oh. nobody leaves until we find out what cunt did it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I have an English example of gestural politics for you. Oh, it's actually perfect. It's um, so after the first outbreak of violence in the Wars of the Roses, uh, Henry the Sixth, just the most useless king of all time, sponsored an event that he called king. Love Day. <laughs> yeah. So Henry the Sixth gets everybody together from both sides, uh, uh, all the different, the two different factions um, who are kind of fighting for who gets to make Henry the Sixth uh, the figurehead for what we want to do here. He he put them in a parade through London uh, and had them walking side by side, like each one figure from each side paired with the other, um, while the populace just stood on and watched in disbelief. Like he had one dude who had killed another guy's father in uh, in some sort of armed clash, walking hand in hand with the guy. Like Aww, with, with the sun, uh, so wait, was it was it like a sort of like a late medieval beer summit? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, so Henry the Sixth looking looking shabby as hell out there at the head of this procession where you've got like the Duke of York with with Henry the Sixth's wife with Margaret with uh, Margaret of Anjou walking hand in hand. Like when everybody knows that they hate each other's guts, and the second that they have the opportunity to do so, they're trying to kill each other. Like, mm. and this is just like that's. But Henry the Sixth can't do anything. 
because he has no authority. He has no power. Nobody's going to listen to him anyway. It's either going to be the Duke of York or his wife who's run- and, and her um, associates who are running things. But you're just like, what, what can we do? We can do a procession. We can do a love day. Love day is what we've got. <laughs> and so it's basically like we've been having fairies doing donuts in the Thames or different versions of that forever because the various Henrys the Sixth that have ruled the UK forever, more or less the entirety of its existence, have to examine. Like, they are presiding over institutions that face crises that when they have to actually do the difficult work of integrating and adapting to those crises, say, what if instead we... Uh, did like a banner or a vibe or maybe yeah. we like did a flyover perhaps but that leads me into into what i think is probably my last question which is like uh, to what extent can we can we draw some marianne inferences here about vibes right because it feels everyone i've spoken to says that things feel different now what 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 does this mean does this mean anything uh are we tricking ourselves once again my, my chakras are heating up yeah. <laughs> my revolution chakra. Yeah, I mean, I was at a UPS store the other day, like dropping off some uh, dropping off some returns. Um, some some of the sleeveless shirts that I'd ordered that I didn't like very much. Uh, just, to bring, just to bring it all the way back. Sleeve around. still too long. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Not not showing enough shoulder here. Uh, like, but like the vibe was different. People were kind of like edgy and looking at each other weird. And this was just after the first kind of outbreak of looting and and violence and, and you know, police doing police things in Los Angeles. It's like there was a different vibe. The like people standing in lines, looking at each other in, in kind of odd ways, like furtive glances. And like you could kind of sense that there was something in the air. It really did feel different. Like I'm not a I'm not a feels guy by any stretch of the imagination, but like the the vibe really was different like if we're going to do a vibe check uh things have things have altered in some meaningful way i think there's just like there's been a lot of there's been too many mask off moments over the last few months for there not to be some sort of change like to put it in kind of technical like political science or institutional studies language like it feels like a critical juncture mm-hmm. and i mean i think the the way i i have it here the way i've been thinking about it is that exemplary violence and gestural politics are are responses to crises that are undergone by are underwent undergone by systems who have literally no other option because they cannot confront them. They do not have the necessary um, uh, uh, flexibility. Love to, to love to sow the seeds of my own destruction. Yeah. So the so the more you see, you know, like like. Like just sort of kneel, like politicians kneeling, or having fairies doing donuts in the Thames, or flyovers, or rage about statues, or or or, or, or Britain, yeah, or the, this kind mm. of thing. The more you see of that, the more you have to realize that the plates that are being spun are wobbling too hard to be uh, spun back up again. Yeah, the the like I don't want to talk too much about the kente stoles thing but like the kente stoles man like if that's your if that's the response of a geriatric and sclerotic opposition party where like they're literally not chasing anybody here you know like they're not chasing the protesters either literally or figuratively like the if that's your response that is a very telling moment and you've got to be blind not to see the meaning of that like they're not in there arguing about 
uh, abolishing the police or defunding or any sort of like actual robust package of legislation. They're not seeking out allies across the aisle to really come to some sort of like grand bipartisan deal about how to address what is pretty obviously a crisis. They're kneeling in kente stoles. Mm -hmm. That is an unavoidable image that everybody now has to deal with. I'm, I, I will like, I will never forget them kneeling in kente stoles. I, I, I love to be a Babylonian king at my yeah. feast and just see uh, writing appear on the wall and the writing says, go boss. <laughs> I love it when my, I love it when my political class are being ho hoisted and just shouting insistently, I don't know whose petard this is. <laughs> I kind of think that like with the with the like the kente scarves and stuff and just like again because there's also an image that hasn't gotten out of my head and something about warrants like a lot more analysis than we have time for well I was looking at that image and I was kind of like okay like Trump has won in November like regardless of what happens and you know like his whole thing the other day about he, he like made this tweet about how he why the reason why he was going down the steps slowly and why he did it because he didn't want to goof on camera like he didn't want like that goof to kind of like be memeified and stuff like that. And it was kind of like for all this, like for, for however like brain dead he is, he has a very acute understanding of how like any position except him standing up could be used against him in a way that like Joe Biden simply doesn't. Yeah. I, I, because the, the, they are the democratic and labor parties have fought very hard to stay this feckless. Uh, to have the right to be this feckless, like I try, like the the Republican and Tory parties, like they have a response. They do have a response. Right, yeah. It's one that they like doing. It's just not a very good one. Yeah. And you know, we talk about uh, uh, Patrick. You mentioned you know the idea of like doing anything, even if it's even if it is some kind of attempt at a bipartisan compromise, which let's admit would be shit. Um, the the Labour have been doing a bipartisan compromise where they're agreeing that anyone defacing a statue gets 10 years in jail. Awesome. Like, though, thanks, Keir Starmer's Labour. Cool. Great job, great job reading the room. Great job <laughs> sussing out the mood there. Like, that's, I mean, but that's the kind of stuff we're going to end up with. It's like um, Mayor Muriel Bowser in D.C., um, you know, paint the giant Black Lives Matter across the street uh, and agree to a 3% increase in the police budget. Yeah, like, I love to get tear gassed on Black Lives Matter Boulevard. <laughs> yeah. Which is, but that's good. Like, I mean, it's beyond parody, but that's going to be the stuff that, that happens because as, as you pointed out, like, this is the beginning of the summer. Weather's going to be real nice. People are going to be out. It's not like, I mean, given the choice between not shooting racial minorities and shooting racial minorities, the police have made their position clear. That's the thing they're going to keep doing. Uh, mm -hmm. So, like, this is not going to stop. In um, Afghanistan, they call this the fighting season. Which I <laughs> uh, but hey, um, I, I think I think with, with that in mind, uh, and knowing that we've gone very long, but... I personally haven't minded going long because I have had just a fantastic time talking to you, Patrick. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. This is my favorite thing. I will come on anytime you guys will have me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. You are my favorite recurring guest. Yes, uh, a thousand percent. <laughs> we will do the movie episode once the history stops. <laughs> Eventually. We just, we just wait for a month where nothing happens. Yeah. Oh, oh, one God, day when please, trashy please let nothing happen. One day when Trash Future is finally over, there'll be a spin-off Trash Future show, which is just focused around Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, Pat Future. 
Yeah, where, where Pat- Patrick goes and is like a detective in New Orleans, and then uh, and is, is, is working with Milo Edwards, and who knows, his best friend, his best friends, Riley, Allison, Hussein, might show up to wish him well. I was thinking of a, uh, I was thinking of more like a Frasier vibe. Where like because like where we just have a reactionary elderly person who's like, oh, yeah, no, I used to I, I used to shoot criminals like that. That used to be my thing. Like <laughs> Frazier, I was like I was thinking about this. Frazier hits a lot different as long as we're talking about spinoffs like Martin Crane does not play the same in 2020 as he did in 1997. <laughs> so, look, if you're listening to this show, stay tuned for a spinoff of Trash Future starring Patrick Wyman. <laughs> uh, contact Wondery. Tides of Tides of History is a TF spinoff now. Um, <laughs> I did story. Wondering. Patrick Wyman moves back <laughs> to <laughs> Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, uh, but I, wa- I want to begin saying, number one, uh, Patrick, thank you so much for coming back on. It's always a delight. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It is a pleasure chatting with you guys. Uh, and also, I want to say, like always, um, if you're listening to this, you've already given us some money for the month. Thank you very much for doing that. Bail fund. Bail, bail funds. Fund. Bail fund. Bail fund. Bail fund. There is a bail fund link. Donate to it. It's not oh, it's it's not as though everyone's like, oh well, well, the bail funds are done. No, keep keep doing that. <laughs> Once you've done that, there are shirts you can buy and stuff. Links are in the description. Um, uh, you you know what it is. Uh, we're gonna put a link to Patrick's Substack in the description as well. It's a really it's a really good read. A lot of the uh, sort of notes for today came out of that. So do read that. Do subscribe to it. Um, listen to Ties of History, and uh, otherwise, I want to thank our uh, our theme song provider. Uh, Alan- <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I want to thank I want to thank our, our I want to thank Alice Cooper for our theme song "Tools Out for Summer," yeah. uh, which you can uh, get on Spotify. Listen Stuart- to it early. Listen to it often. Stuart Lee, theme song provider. <laughs> All right, later, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.